December 7th, 2007. It was a really important day for me and for my family. Uh, here's a picture from December 7th, 2007. That is the day that my daughter came home. She was almost one year old. Uh, we brought her home from Guatemala, adopted her into our family, and that's our homecoming. That is her older brother meeting her for the first time uh, and greeting her with a kiss. You can't see it, but he's got a shirt on that is about five sizes too big, and it says, I'm the big brother. Uh, and that was just a really special moment that we waited for, like I said, for a year. We got our first picture of Eden, my daughter, when she was seven days old, and we had to watch her grow up for almost a year outside of our home, and that was really difficult. She was cared for well, but we wanted her home so badly, and so this was just such an important day. I'm thankful for this day, but in the, in the weeks and, and months leading up to this, right before we went to bring her home, we actually weren't sure if this day was actually ever going to happen. See, uh, as, we, as we went through the process, there was uh, some, some difference between interpretation and in the U.S. government and the Guatemalan government. I won't bore you with the details, uh, but, but, but we were having trouble finalizing the adoption. And so uh, in the eyes of the Guatemalan government, our daughter was ours. She had her last name, but she couldn't come home yet. And that left me feeling kind of hopeless. Kinda, I, I, did, I felt like we were out of options. I didn't know what to do, and I was just kind of hopeless about the whole thing. But my wife, who, who very often reflects the image of God far better than I do, I remember one day she came in, comes in uh, and, and completely matter-of-factly just says, hey, should we move to Guatemala for a while until we can figure this thing out? And I was shocked by that, that idea. But she said, well, because we have a kid that's stuck in another country, and you don't leave your family stuck in another country. You, you go get them, right? And I love that. I love that spirit. Uh, that's what you do for family, right? You go get them when they're far off. Eventually, the, the, the differences got worked out, and we got to share this, this homecoming moment. But, but, but that was an important moment for us, that moment when my wife said, you go get your family, right? Because whether we've experienced it or not in our families, that's what we want. We want to be a part of families that live like my wife does. If your family's in need, if they need you, you go get them. And you bring them home. Today we're going to look at the conversion of Paul from Acts chapter 9. He goes on to become the Apostle Paul. Acts comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the Gospels. These talk about Jesus' life. Acts is what happens in the aftermath of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. What happens? What do people do after Jesus' resurrection? And the story in Acts 9 that we're going to look at shows us a picture of a God who goes to pretty extreme lengths to show how big his love is. In this series, we've been looking at these interactions after the resurrection to get a better picture of who Jesus is, to understand him better. But we've also been trying to understand in these interactions a little more of who we are and what we should do. What are our next right steps in light of Jesus' resurrection? And so as we unpack this together, I'm hoping we see two things uh, as we look at how Jesus shows up for Paul. I think we're going to see God inviting us to listen long enough to know. That's first. Listen long enough to know so that we can know enough to move forward. Listen long enough to know, so that we can know enough to move forward. Okay, so let's jump into the scriptures together. Acts chapter 9, it's in your bulletin. If you've got your Bible, you can open that. If you have an app on your phone, feel free uh, to follow along with me. It starts this way. Meanwhile, Saul, 
Okay, let's stop there. I know we didn't get very far, but uh, there's a little point that we have to make uh, here. Uh, Saul is uh, who will later be referred to in starting in Acts chapter 14 as Paul. Saul is the Hebrew. Paul is the Greek translation of that Hebrew. Same person. So this is the one who's going to go on and plant all those churches and write all those letters that I'm holding in my hand. He's the one that's going to go on to change the world for the sake of the gospel. But here, Saul, or Paul, is in a very, very different place. Here, he's still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, this is Christians, this is followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. There are times when our passion can outpace our perspective. When we meet Paul or Saul, it's a couple chapters earlier at the end of chapter 7 of Acts, and he's persecuting the church. Paul was a highly educated Jewish man, and he's headed to Damascus to put people in jail if they believe in Jesus. Damascus was a city 135 miles, is a city 135 miles north of Jerusalem, And there, uh, it was a a robust city. It was a city that had a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of people in and out of it. It was a very diverse place. And it was a place that was very familiar with religious violence. And still today, in Syria, this is a place that's very familiar with people doing violence against each other. So this isn't some old story about some old place that doesn't matter, as though we've evolved beyond this. But in Paul's day, according to the historian Josephus, uh, Greeks and Jews were engaged in constant feuds in in Damascus. And so Paul is going to join in on the violence by targeting followers of Jesus because he believed that they were leading God's people astray. That that he was was saying that that Jesus, this, this man who was crucified as a criminal, is somehow the abundant life. If you believe that, you're totally wrong. And so he believed... Christians were actually the societal ill that needed to be eliminated. So Paul was this intense, passionate, zealous for God. He, he was studied, he was, he was intellectual, and he was focused on his task. He was headed to Damascus to put Christians in prison. I think there are times when we can get so uh, focused and excited about our agenda that we can become uh, kind of laser pinpointed on that agenda and, and we miss obvious signs that, that things just aren't right. I moved from Indiana to, to Florida uh, 10 years ago and I've had to adjust to, to some differences between Indiana and Florida. Constant construction, that's both an Indiana and a Florida thing. So I'm very, very used to that. There was no real translation there. People wearing scarves when it's just below 85 degrees, that's pretty much just a Florida thing uh, and takes a little getting used to. But there's another difference, uh, and, and many, but, but one other difference uh, is that plants grow all the time. In, in Indiana, you get kind of a break. You don't have to mow your grass for like four months because it's cold and it's rainy and icy and everything kind of dies off. But here, things grow year-round, and I've had to adjust to that. Now, let me just say, for those of you uh, that, that maybe don't know me well, I have a tendency to be particular about certain things. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit particular in certain things, and my yard is, is one of those things. I, I like it to be nice. I like, it, I like it to be put together and, and look good. I like to come home and say, yeah, that, that, I took care of that. I'm so thankful for it, and I want to take care of it. And so 
pretty much anytime I leave the front door to go to the office, uh, go, go out to work or, or wherever I'm headed, or I come in at the end of the day or we're just out front uh, playing or whatever, or out back playing, I'll just look around and I'll pick a few weeds because things are growing all the time. And if you don't pick the weeds when they're small, then all of a sudden they grow and they start to choke out the good plants. So I'm kind of constantly always picking, picking these weeds when I'm, when I'm walking by uh, the plant beds. But there's one time when I won't, when I'll just walk right past them. It's when I'm in a hurry. When I'm in a hurry, the weeds don't seem like that big of a deal. I say, oh, it's no big deal. I'll get to it later. Even if they're growing and growing and growing, I'm just, I'm in a hurry. I'll get to it. I'll get to it later. That's when I don't pick the weeds, when I'm in a hurry, when I'm racing forward with my agenda. I lose perspective that the weeds can actually grow up, and if they're left unchecked, they can get out of hand, and they can choke out the good things, and they can take over. See, weeds don't look like that big of a deal when we're in a hurry. And obvious signs that things aren't right can get missed. Paul was moving quickly toward his purpose. He was laser-focused on his agenda. But the weed that was being left unchecked to grow and to take over, that weed was hate. And he thought it was okay. He was racing ahead, forgetting to ask God, God, what do you want? And he missed the obvious I don't want this. See, in our racing ahead with our agenda, it can lead to our passion outpacing our perspective. It can lead to hate that squeezes out the good that God wants to do. If, you, uh, if he would have, would have stopped, right, for just, just a moment, he would have heard God say, like, this isn't what I'm about. Right? And we can hear that and go, yeah, Paul totally missed it. It was totally ridiculous. Like, I don't, I don't know why he would do this. How could he possibly do this? But, but there are places where we can be so confident in what we're up to, so confident that we actually forget to ask God if he's even interested in this at all. Forget to ask God, is this what he is up to? This is the fertile soil that hate grows in. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been so passionate to have people know the truth of God that, that you just crush him in a conversation? Or have you ever been so passionate about your political opinion that you just verbally destroyed anyone on social media who thinks any differently? You try to win the argument but forget to love the person. Or maybe you see what that other person posts and you don't respond, but your opinion of them shifts so dramatically that you don't want anything to do with them. There's no chance of relationship. All right, this is an actual exercise that, that we're going to do. I, I want to see a show of hands. Don't worry, this is grace-driven ministry, but I want to actually see a show of hands. How, how many of you have unfriended someone on Facebook because they have said something offensive about politics, religion, childcare, schooling choices, food? Casseroles are ridiculous. <laughs> How many of you have actively avoided someone because you just don't want to talk to them? If we don't even consider that, that we should ask people not just what they believe, but why they believe it, it's possible that our passion is outpacing our perspective. And we need to do better at having conversations, speaking and also listening. And if I asked, you know, honestly, tell me, is there anyone uh, that, that you can't stand? Or is there anyone that's just like, you know what, I just don't like that person? You know what the common thread would be for all of us, those people that we don't like? I'm pretty sure the common thread is this. They're people that slow us down. 
Why do we get upset about the person who drives five miles below the speed limit or the person at Publix in front of us that has 75 coupons? Right? They slow us down. Why do we have such a difficult time with that person that thinks differently than us? Because it takes time to be in relationship with them. That's why a lot of the times we don't pursue relationship with them at all. We, we just make them the other. We put them in a category different than our category, uh, and we get out of, of caring for them or about them because they aren't a person anymore. They're just that other thing, that other perspective, that other way of thinking. But in the moments of racing ahead, if we ever feel anything approaching hate for that person who thinks differently, for, for that person that slows us down on the road or, or, or at Publix, that person in the way of us getting back to what we want to get to, we should identify it for what it is. If we have anything approaching hate, we should identify it for what it is, something that can squeeze out the good that could be there. And it's worth it in these moments to, to stop, to stop racing ahead, to slow down, and to listen. Pew Research just did a study uh, recently of 10,000 Americans, and, and the, the outcome of this study is, is that they found at this moment, we, as a country, are more polarized and more divided than we've ever been, which means we might hear a lot of talk, but we have very little inclination to listen. We make our decisions about where we live, who we'll marry, who we'll be friends with, all based on what we already believe. And a conversation requires a balance, right? It requires a balance between talking and listening. And somewhere along the way, the way we've, we've kind of lost this balance. And we are losing out because of it. Paul was headed to Damascus. He wasn't looking for a conversation. But Paul was about to have one. A conversation that all of us need to have a conversation that changes every other conversation. In verse 3, chapter 9, it continues. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Love always has a loudness to it. It, it, always, it always cuts through all the other noise and all the other uncertainty and all the fear and all the hate. It cuts through all that. It shines in the darkness. That's what Jesus' voice does here. It, it comes in a, in a light flashing and it says, you're headed the wrong way. And I love you too much to allow you to keep moving that direction. Let's talk about it. You see what Jesus does there? He, he asks a question of Paul, because questions invite relationship, but, but he does something else. He responds to Paul's question. He doesn't throw his hands up in the air and walk away because Paul doesn't know everything. He talks, and then he listens, and then he talks. He has a conversation. So Paul can know that he is the Lord. That's what this conversation is about, but also so that Paul can know what kind of Lord he is. Paul asks, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. Remember, Paul was a Jew, and one of the core beliefs of the Jewish people is that God is a God who shows up. He shows up for his people. Jewish people and the writers of the scriptures, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they had this, 
they had this story that they told. And they told it over and over and over again. It was about this great promise, this great dream that would one day become reality. And the dream was that God would show up and he'd undo everything that was wrong in the world, just like he did it at the Exodus, when he showed up for his people, when he pulled them out of slavery and he led them to be free. He came, that he came and got his family back. He showed up in the gap and he provided the solution. And it was core belief that God would do it again. Not just the idea of God would, would, would be in our hearts, but God would actually show up and actually fix the problem. And so the resurrected Jesus, more than a man, was there for Paul to deal with. It was Jesus. It was raised, he was raised from the dead. He was vindicated. What that meant is that Paul now had to admit something that's really difficult to admit. He was wrong. He had to admit that he was wrong, that Jesus wasn't, at best, a normal guy who taught about love, or, or at worst, a, a blasphemous man who, who led a revolt and died a criminal at the hands of the Roman government. He had to admit that Jesus is who he said he was, that his claims, that he was God in the flesh, come to save the world, God shown up, he had to admit that was true. Just like Jesus had said in, in John 3, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God showed up just like he promised he would and just like Paul had hoped for, to set things right. Not to pay sinners back for the wrong they had done, for the hate they had, they had, they had perpetuated or the conversations that they had left unhad. No, but to win sinners back from, from sin and from death by carrying it all on his own shoulders. See, I think we have a tendency in a world that, that moves really quickly to forget that sin, the, the stuff that moves us away from God, moves us away from each other, the stuff that's inside all that's wrong with the world, sin is powerful, and its outcome is death. And we can't defeat it on our own. If we could, we don't need a Savior, but if we can't, we need one. And Jesus knew it. And so in our time of, of deep need, Jesus goes to great lengths to show us how big his love is. And he came, and he took on the cross, and the wrath and the justice that was ours to bear, he took on himself so that we could be free, not just from the penalty of sin, though that's good news, but from the power of it as well, so that we could be slaves no longer to sin, but freed up for righteousness, as Paul would later write in Romans. So that we could be adopted as sons and daughters. More words from Paul that he would later write. See, he's the Lord who, who came, who showed up for us, who was willing to die, who was raised to new life, all to bring us home. Just like God had promised. Remember, love is always loud. It's supposed to cut through, and it will cut through everything that you can hear about yourself or, or about others. If you've never heard it, Jesus showing up says something to you. It says there is someone who, who would stop at nothing to say, I love you. I connect so much with the story of Paul I think because I so often get it wrong. 
I, I get moving in a direction and I don't stop to ask that question, God, is this what you're up to? I just assume he's on board with my plan. And, and I get it so wrong so often and I'm so thankful that there's a God who doesn't quit on me. I want to connect with a father who will go to those dramatic lengths to bring his children home. Around here, you'll hear us say from time to time, take as long as you need, but no longer than you have to, to to deal with the question, is Jesus who he said he was? Because the answer to that will change everything. It'll change the trajectory of your life, and it will impact the people around you. Maybe for you, it's time to do work with that question for the first time or again. Is Jesus Lord? Is he the one that should be setting the, 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 the course for me? Is he the one that should be setting the agenda for me? Maybe it's time to have that one conversation you need to have above every other conversation. Jesus then says to Paul, he says, he says get up. And, and then I'll let you know more. Get up, go into the city, and then I'll let you more, know more. This is similar to, to, to Abraham's call. All the way back in the Old Testament, God says, go to the place that I, that I will show you. See, Paul didn't know everything. He only knew enough to have faith in Jesus as the guide, enough faith to say, if Jesus asks you to do something, it must be worth saying yes to. And in verse 7, it says, the, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. This is important. I want to spend just a second on this. The people with Paul, they didn't know what was going on. They knew something had happened. They knew Paul was experiencing something, but they they couldn't exactly place it, uh, put it all together. They couldn't quite figure it out. When we come in contact with Jesus, the people around us might know something is different, but they might need some time to to know exactly what it is. Another way to say that is the miraculous sometimes takes a while to believe. So in these moments, if we feel a deep conviction or clarity that we're moving in the wrong direction and we have to change things dramatically, uh, in these moments, we should absolutely be faithful to what Jesus is calling us to, but we should also be graceful to the people around us if it takes them a while to catch up, to understand what's going on, the difference in us. We shouldn't get angry with them if it takes them a while to see the difference in us. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So these men that were with him, they led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. Remember, we're talking about listening long enough to know. And this process of listening long enough to know, it may lead to you hearing something that that actually you don't want to hear. See, Paul expected when he heard from God, he would hear, well done. But instead, what he got was, stop hating people. Take a difficult journey and trust me. We may expect God to say to us, of course, you you can have that. But he may say to us, trust me, it's no good for you. We may hope to hear him say that, that he'll take away the difficult circumstance or the, the, the uncomfortable reality or the terrible diagnosis, but what we might hear is not yet, or maybe not at all. And what's at stake in these moments when we don't hear what we want, when this listening long enough to know takes longer than we want and we don't hear what we want, what's at stake is do we believe that he's Lord? Because if we don't, 
We won't stop to listen, and we certainly won't follow him along a difficult road. See, it's possible that what we see as an affliction that's throwing us off schedule might be exactly how God can redeem by inviting us to listen. It won't lessen the pain necessarily, but it might give us hope in the midst of it if we slow down and we listen. If you're hurting, if, if you're here and you're struggling, maybe you've been open about that, maybe you're just doing it very silently and kind of moving along like everything's okay, I'm really sorry. But part of how God might redeem your story and your pain, the pain you're feeling, is by drawing you closer to Him. Listening might take longer than we would like, but it's worth the wait to listen long enough to know that you're loved by Jesus. The story of what God is up to with Paul, it takes a, a pretty interesting turn at this point, and another character is interju- introduced in, in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. God sends Ananias to Paul, and Ananias is understandably hesitant. I love Ananias. It's one of the things that, as I was looking at this scripture this time, it just really popped out of the page to me. I'd never really paid a lot of attention to Ananias before, and I think there's sermons worth that could be talked about uh, in his life and how he responds here. I love his faith. I love his trust. I love his gentleness with someone who is in a very difficult place. I love his willingness to believe that the resurrection wasn't limited to Jesus but could happen for all people, even the most hateful people. Ananias says, I've heard of this guy. I want to be as far away from him as possible because he he might try to hurt me. But God says, no, go. There's no one outside of my love, no one outside of my grace. Go tell him that. And so he does. Ananias goes and he places his hands on him. Do you notice notice what Ananias called him? Brother. See, Paul was seeing people and he was calling them enemy. Ananias sees an enemy and he calls him brother. Why does he do that? He does it because he slowed down long enough to listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, Paul is loved and he can be used to do great things. He can be good. If there is a seedling of hate, it was torn out because Ananias stopped and listened and he allowed his view of people to be shaped by Jesus' view of people. Again, are we willing to listen? 
after Ananias puts his hands on Paul, Paul can see again. And Paul, in this moment, he recognizes something really important. Jesus offers both sight but also salvation, both perspective that, that, you, that you might be headed the wrong direction, but also new life to move in the right direction. But it leads to an important question. If I have sight and I recognize there's salvation, what do I do when I'm not finished, when I'm a mess, when, when, I'm, when I've been moving the wrong way for so long, I don't even know what to do? You take your next right step. My son, Caleb, the little boy from the picture earlier, he's 13 now, he's about this tall, and he's on the middle school track team. And the mile is his event, and, uh, and it's a pretty emotional thing for me. Uh, because I love track. Uh, it is a super important thing. Also because I love him and, uh, and I'm really proud of him, but, but I also really love track. Um, uh, all, those, all three of those things together. Um, and, but, but as the mile uh, is an event that I ran in middle school and high school, and so, uh, so I've been giving him some pointers along the way with total respect to his coach. Of course, his coach knows exactly what it should be doing, but there's some extra coaching that can happen. That can be a helpful thing. Uh, and so uh, I told Caleb after his first meet, he ran his, his personal record. It was so great. But I told him, I said, one of the things that I want uh, you to focus on, one of the things that I think could be really helpful for you is always keep your eye on the person in front of you that you're looking to to pass. Because, because we have a tendency to do a couple of different things when you run. You have a tendency to look down, to focus right in front of you, and then you can never keep your eye on the goal ahead. Or you, you kind of look around and say, oh my gosh, there's four laps and, and I'm way behind this guy, and you lose perspective because, because the problem seems so big. It seems like such a big task. But if you focus on the thing that's in front of you until you accomplish that, until you pass that person, and then you set your eyes on the next task, that's how you complete the race. Don't worry about the finish line. Focus on what's next. Paul didn't know everything that was going to come. It wasn't all laid out for him. But he knew what to do next. He knew what to focus on and go after next. So what's he do? He gets baptized, which is a really interesting thing. There's, there's a sense of urgency to this. The, the next thing he does after gaining his sight, he hadn't eaten for three days either because he was having a spiritual crisis or because he was pouting or both. Like, I'm not sure exactly what Paul was doing, but he hadn't eaten for three days. It wasn't get a meal. That wasn't the first thing he did after he received his sight. He got baptized. Because you don't have to know everything to know enough to move forward. Paul could have said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. Like, I know that he's Lord, uh, and I know I've been moving in the wrong direction, but I'm not all right. I'm not finished. And we might say the same as well. We might say, oh, yeah, I know he's Lord, but I'm, I'm just not finished. I'm kind of messed up, and, and maybe I should wait until I get things figured out, get a, get a little better, a little further down the road. When I get cleaned up a little bit, then I'll take those, those types of steps. That's maybe not for, for me yet, but, but that's the beauty and the mystery of baptism. You don't have to be all right. He is. Paul wasn't finished. He was just willing to be changed. Again, Paul, a little further down the road, he, he, he reflects on baptism in, in Romans 6. He says, don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I mean, the hope is that every single person that takes that step of baptism is more a follower of Jesus, more Christ-like the next day and the next day and the next day than they are the day they get baptized. It's not about being finished. 
It's not about arriving. It's about realizing he's Lord. So Paul knew he, he, he was making his faith in, in Jesus as Savior public. He knew that was an important, a dramatic, and important next step, regardless of what Jesus asked him to do after that. Before he preached the gospel, before he planted the churches, before he wrote all the letters that make up a lot of the New Testament, Paul was baptized. He makes this outward and public declaration of his personal commitment to Christ. And for some of us, that's what should come next. Not when we're perfected, not when it's all perfect, not when we get ourselves together. That's what should come next, to declare who Jesus is. Not when we're all right, but to recognize he is. And if that's you, if that's your next right step, do it. Take that step. We will cheer you on like crazy at the beachside, and we'll cheer you on like crazy as you take every next step after that in community. It's one thing to say in the privacy of your own heart, to, to listen long enough to know that, 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 that you're a sinner and you need a Savior, but it's a really different thing to go public with your faith, to say, I will follow that Savior. Because our faith is meant to be personal, but never meant to be private. C.K. Barrett, who, who wrote a common, uh, commentary on, on this scripture, says whether this event in Paul's life should be described as a conversion or, or a call, the fact is that it's both. A conversion in the Christian sense is always at the same time a call. Conversion and vocation are complements of each other. Jesus, uh, and I think Easter is a perfect example of this, Jesus never asked us to let go of something without inviting us into what comes next. And you know what comes next? What comes next is always go tell. It's always go tell. And Paul would. He would go on to tell. You can read about that at the end of Acts chapter 22, chapter 26. You can read the letters. Galatians 1, he tells his own story. See, the change in Paul's story led to a change in the entire story. The church expanded. The gospel was preached across the world because Paul was willing to share his story. Maybe you know he's Lord. Maybe you've been baptized as an affirmation of that. For you, let me just say, you never know. You never know how telling your story, the one about the God who loves you so much that he'd go to these dramatic lengths to show up for you, you never know how telling that story will give hope to a coworker or a neighbor or bring joy to a kid in base camp, or repair that fractured relationship with your family. You never know how slowing down and creating space for others might just point others to a God who showed up for them too, or how helping that needy person will help them see their value as you serve them, or how having that conversation can change things. But this, this is how we're to live in light of the resurrection. As tellers of stories and inviters in of hope, not hate. Because God, in our great time of need, he shows up for us. He comes for us and he comes and gets us because that's what family does for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word your word which tells us the truth. And the truth is you love us so much that you wouldn't let distance stand between us. You came for us. And you wouldn't let us keep moving in the wrong direction. You pointed us toward life. And you continue to invite us to be changed by the truth of who you are. And you continue 
to invite us to go tell the story of that change. I pray that in our words and in our actions, we would continue to be changed by you. That in our, in our interactions with friends, with coworkers, on social media, that we would be people who, who, who listen because you listen to us. You're not, you're not hurt by or turn away from us when we question, when we, when we ask, who are you, Lord? You just answer, I'm Jesus. And you stand there waiting for us and you invite us along to know enough to move forward in faith. I pray that we would be people who take next right steps following you because you're trustworthy and because you're good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.